Okay, the listener surveys are in, and finally, finally, we have some concrete data about the podcast. Excellent. Let's get into the weeds. Right. So 50% of the audience think our episodes are too long, and 50% of our audience think they're too short. 100% of those surveyed thought our digressions on pop culture were spot on, although the survey does note that only one person answered that particular question. Okay. 33% think we should have more leprechaun content. Sorry, is that the creature or the film series? It's not clear. I guess both? Anyway, carrying on. 43% of respondents like how we put it to the bastards, and 18% love that all we do is debunk conspiracy theories. Yeah, but, but... Yeah, I know, I know. Now, 23% of people want the podcast to go fortnightly, 39% think it should be twice weekly, and 41% think it would be great to bring the podcast back. Yeah, that's over 100%. Also, what? Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so is there any useful data? Anything we can do to, you know, make the podcast better? Well... Yes? No. Really? Nope. All this data is contrary. 16% of respondents think we should give more gardening tips, and only one person answered that question. A question I might add I didn't put in the survey. 26% of respondents would like us to use the name Otis for everyone. All the data is useless. The only thing which is useful is... Yes? Well, people love those What the Conspiracy episodes, but they also find them incredibly stressful to listen to. They'd really like us to, you know, put at the top of the show what the content is going to be about. Well, we can't ignore our listeners. No, we can't. So, this is an episode of What the Conspiracy. Josh... What's the topic? Uh, well, it's quite interesting. It's a tale about how the Walt Disney Corporation, for fun mostly, um, while at the same time on an island as uh, Coca-Cola executives and Elon Musk in illicit while while the entire Republican Party really no. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. Here in Auckland, New Zealand, I am Josh Addison, and in Zhuhai, China, we have Associate Professor of Philosophy who gains superpowers after being bitten by a radioactive They Might Be Giants album, Dr. M. Rx Dentith. Well, the statue got me high. Mm, your superpower is that you, you, you are the little bird house in our soul you, you can build birdhouses in people's souls which is rather difficult for me because as i'm a materialist and not a jeweler i don't even think souls exist and yet somehow yeah. that is my power well there you go so uh we don't have anything at the top of the show do we Nothing no. new, nothing new and no. interesting. No, no, nothing interesting at all. Uh, so it's what the conspiracy episode. Um, should we just go straight into it? It's time to play what the conspiracy. So, um, as I told you last week. 
uh, in the bonus episode, as I recall, so our regular listeners won't know. This week, I've done the same thing I did last time, where I had a bunch of interesting things that none of which would would fill up an episode by themselves, but they're all basically on the same theme. So I've I've th- that's that's going to be my what the conspiracy story. So once again, when you try to guess where, when, and what the conspiracies I'm about to tell you are, you can either have one guess in the knowledge that, that there are, in this instance, four stories that, 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 that might, uh, might, might actually be right for, or if you really feel up to it, you could guess four different places and four different times. Well, I'm going to go for four. I feel, I feel I should go for four. All right, so ask me the first question. So where do you think these conspiracies occurred? North America, South America... Antarctica and Rapa Nui. Impressive. Okay. When do you think they occurred? August 8th, 1526, the entirety of the 20th century, the Cretaceous era. Although, frankly, if you, if you, if you can get me a conspiracy theory in the Cretaceous era, I'll be very impressed given the lack of written or oral records about that time. And Guy Fawkes, any year. Just Guy Fawkes. Uh, okay, you're completely wrong on all the places. I mean, the the times do sort of span several years, so there would have been several Guy Fawkes days uh, occurring over some of them. So you're a little bit right there, but um, everywhere else I'm afraid you're way, way off. But what about the what? What, what do you think I'm going to be talking about? The what's a singular thing, isn't it? Because it's going to be the unifying it's a, it's, theme. It's a theme, yes. Yeah. So I think the theme. See, I think I think you've given away by using the word theme. I think it's going right. to be a conspiracy theory about show tunes. Oh, you wish, you wish it was a conspiracy about show tunes. We'd never. We'd be recording this from now until the end of time if I let you get show tunes into an episode. I'm afraid. I'm afraid not, though. So I can't, I can't break out my In olden days a glimpse of stocking Was looked on as something shocking But heaven knows Anything goes No, you cannot No. no. What about the hills are alive With the sound Wouldn't really call it a show tune? Here. I mean, it's a tune from a musical But I don't know I don't think that one applies No, okay, anyway, I'll put you out of your misery So I'm going to be talking about wacky CIA hijinks basically. And I figure with four stories, I'm hoping at least one of them will be one you haven't actually heard of before. But I've gone for the... That means that my... That means at least my 20th century guess has to be somewhat on the money, given the CIO only yes. comes into existence in the middle of the 20th century. Unless I suppose that's true. Yes, really yes. clever and only chosen 21st century CIA hijinks. And I suspect there are probably four... CIA hijink stories of the 21st century, but I suspect almost certainly. I but no, no, you actually no. Yeah, I should give you that. Yes, they they do all occur in the latter half of the 20th century. So, um, and can you guarantee that some of them weren't going on on Guy Fawkes Day? Uh, no, like I said, I'm pretty sure some of them were, almost almost certainly. In fact, well, actually, when when is Guy Fawkes Day? November. What? When is the monsoon season in Vietnam? I do not know. You'd think I would have written that down, but I didn't. But uh, if, if, if Guy Fawkes Day occurs during the monsoon season, then definitely. Because, right, so I have four stories. You must be over 18 for the second two stories. They, they're, they're, they're a little saucy. 
but we'll get to that. Uh, the first one, though, is is the story of CIA weather control in Vietnam. Yep, I'm talking about everyone's favourite operation, Operation Sober Popeye. I don't, I don't know why. So, can you, can you do, can you give me the name of that operation one, one more time? That's Operation Sober Popeye. Yeah, that one's more appropriate. I'll give you. Yeah, I don't know why Popeye was normally like Popeye didn't drink in the cartoons as far as I mean he was a sailor. So you'd expect he'd be no stranger to a bottle of rum, but um, but his I don't know why. So I, I don't know. Anyway, so Operation Sober Popeye was the Vietnam exercising weather control during the Vietnam War. And when I say weather control, I actually mean cloud seeding, which is technically weather control. I mean, you can't is, you can't it, deny it, that. It is a form of geoengineering. It certainly is. I, I'm assuming our listeners are probably familiar with cloud seeding, but just in case, it's we it's it's a thing that people do. People genuinely, honestly do, where you get up on a plane, you fly above the clouds, and sprinkle particles of of various substances. I think uh, silver iodide is one of the more popular ones, and the the, the scientific idea is that by spreading particles through a cloud, you increase the number of potential nucleation sites for uh, raindrops or snowflakes, and you can increase, um, either make it rain more or possibly make it rain when it wasn't quite going to rain. Uh, that said, as f- from what I can tell, the science is a little bit divided as to whether or not it actually works. Um, some things I've read said it doesn't really yeah. have a statistically significant yeah. effect. It's if it works, it's a very imprecise science. Yeah. I believe they've got better at cloud seeding in the last decade or so, and that there have mm. been advances in the understanding of how it works. But there's still a little bit of a worry that people are only reporting positive instances and not mm. negative instances of, say, of reporting where it does work and kind of ignoring the cases where it doesn't work. So statistically, I think the jury is still somewhat out on the utility of cloud yeah. seeding. But if you happen to be a cloud seeder and you know more about cloud seeding than Josh and I do, which is basically yep. nothing, you still Not get much. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, people use it for... Well, people attempt it for, you know, agricultural purposes to get a bit more rain. Um, I've heard of the super-rich funding a, a bit of cloud seeding if they think it's it might be going to rain on the day of a special occasion to try and get get it to rain a couple of days before so the rain's sort of all rained out and you get a fine day when you want it. But, um, but that's not what they were trying to do in the Vietnam War. In the Vietnam War, they thought that if they could extend the monsoon season beyond its usual time, um, that would do extra damage to the roads used by the North Vietnamese, especially if they could target their cloud seeding to specifically the areas that the North Vietnamese would, would be moving their supplies through. So they thought if they could muddy up the roads, if they could cause extra slips and landslides, it would damage the North Vietnamese's ability to, to transport things. And so that's what they did. They, they had a few test runs in Laos, and then they ran missions taking off from Thailand over various areas in Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. Uh, and supposedly they, they were flying these cloud seeding missions twice a day, every day during the monsoon season, every year from 1967 to 1972. So this was done under the the 
uh, official cover of being weather reconnaissance missions, and apparently they were as well. Like they, they, they'd go out, they'd do whatever you do on a weather reconnaissance mission, find out what, how it's looking, and report back. But also while they were up there, they'd dump a bit of silver iodide or lead iodide, apparently, into the clouds. Now this is this is the sort of thing. It's a little bit a little bit frowned upon um, at the time. It wasn't specifically like outlawed, but certainly they hadn't told the, the, the Laotian government that they'd been running tests there. They hadn't told the Thai government that they were taking off and doing cloud seeding operations from their, <clears throat> from their country. They just stuck with the weather reconnaissance thing. And uh, this operation was, was eventually outed. Um, in 1971, a reporter called Jack Anderson reported that, that the, the CIA was up to this in Vietnam. And then uh, it had a, quote, brief mention in the Pentagon papers. I think they the mentioned some sort of an Operation Popeye, which was a cloud seeding thing, uh, which then prompted a, a, a bigger article in the New York Times in 1972, um, which really brought brought national attention to that what was going on. And apparently the mission stopped like two days after the New York Times article was published because if, essentially it sounds like someone a bit higher up found out and was like, you're doing what? And it was stopped. And uh, these days, weather manipulation for military purposes is in fact banned by the Geneva Conventions. The Environmental Modification Convention came into force in 1978, possibly prompted specifically by Operation Sober Popeye, and you're not allowed to do that anymore, which I, I guess is a good thing, messing with other countries' weather. It's a bit, it's a bit super villainy, isn't it? It is, but the fact, I'm, I'm, I'm still fixated on the name Sober Popeye. I mean, there's going to be there's always there's always rules around operation names because they almost always have two parts, you know, mm. adjective and a noun. And is it just a random word generator, or is there significance? I would actually i I would like to know because I mean, some of them seem quite appropriate. I mean, we're moving outside of the CIA, but you know, one of those wars in. In Iraq was Operation Desert Storm. Okay, so that's obviously mm. appropriate to the region. It's a desert, and you're storming it. Desert Storm. And if there's a rain, a lot of them are a lot more random. Sobering your Popeye. Mm. Okay, does the word sober have a different meaning in America? And is Popeye so. a colloquialism for for water or clouds? I need to know. I need to know. I have a memory of hearing that they used to make them more meaningful and then decided to, to just make them random words in case they sort of people would hear the name of a of a an operation that was being planned or something and glean some sort of I might be able to make some sort of guess as to what they were doing, but I might be making that up. I don't I mean, that's I have a memory of that. That sounds it sounds sensible, but I cannot remember where I actually heard that. So it's possibly it sounds too sensible. Too also, sensible, yeah. yeah. Sounds a little bit evil because oh, we we can't give accurate names to our secret operations. People might find out about the bad things we're constantly doing. So let's just mm. give them random names that no one ever connects the dots. Right. Yes. No. That's I don't know. But uh, so that's story number one. Okay, um, st- 
I did not know about the Sober Popeye, so I'm very good. Oh, good record. Okay. Uh, story number two was suggested to me by friend of the show Hayden and patron. Uh, so thank you very much on several account on several counts, Hayden. Uh, this does not have an operation name, as far as I'm aware, but uh, we've gone from CIA weather control in Vietnam to CIA vampire attacks in the Philippines. Now, I think I've read about this in the 14 Times. Sounds like something they'd write about. About it. It was a CIA seeding stories about vampire attacks around Manila. So it, when we say vampire attacks, that's the Western equivalent, but it was the as, as I'm not sure if it's Aswang or Aswang, I don't know how the word is pronounced, but um, that's that, that's the specific entity that they were referring to, which apparently is, is sort of a general term for a bunch of creatures from Filipino folklore, but one kind is a creature that sucks people's blood, a, a humanoid, a creature that appears human and sucks people's blood, rather than though than, than biting them with fangs, they have a proboscis-like tongue, which I assume is what gave Guillermo del Toro the idea for his vampires in, um, in Blade 2 and, and in The Strain, his novels and TV series. So yes, this, this happened post-World War II in the Philippines. In the Philippines, there, was, there were the Hucks, Huck being an abbreviation for a Tagalog phrase that I can't pronounce, which meant the People's Army against the Japanese. So in World War II, they were fighting against Japanese invaders in the Philippines. So they were on the side of the West. They were on. They, they were fighting beside, side by side with the United States. But after the war, they were not too fond of the the increasing role that the states was trying to take um, in, in running the Philippines. In particular, they opposed the Bell Trade Act, which was an act that was passed in the Philippines that apparently gave the US a lot of control over essentially the economy of the Philippines and, and Philippine industries. Um, so their, their, their disapproval of that ended up getting them expelled from Congress and they went back to using the same sort of guerrilla tactics they'd been using against the Japanese, but this time fighting against um, US forces. Um, so the Philippines government had trouble handling them. So at that point, the CIA stepped in, led by a man called Edward Lansdale. And from 1950 to 1954, one of the things they did while fighting the Hucks, apart from actually fighting them, which obviously they did a bit of, they used various propaganda tactics. And one of them was um, using belief in the Aswang, which was which which was you know something that which which was uh, um, believed in in um, some areas of the Philippines, and so basically what they do is having you know having gotten a fight with some hucks and and killed a bunch of them, they would sort of conspicuously leave the bodies lying around the place with big wounds in their necks and drained of blood as though they had been munched on by some sort of supernatural blood sucker, basically to put the wind up the locals and and make them think that the 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 fights that these people are involved in are sort of drawing these supernatural forces. So uh, Edward Lansdale talks about this in his memoir. Apparently, um, that in fact he even talks about not not just poking holes in dead bodies, but actually killing captured hucks um, specifically so that they could. What did he say? He said they'd poke holes in their necks and then hang them up by their ankles uh, after they were dead, so that all their blood would drain out and uh, then leave their body to be found either by their comrades who would think, oh crap, there's vampires around here, we better move somewhere else, or, or by the locals who'd think, what are these hucks bringing, bringing into our area? And apparently it worked. 
apparently as a psychological warfare tactic, it did actually have an effect, and the Hux began to lose support amongst the locals. Obviously, by itself, it didn't um, defeat them completely, but apparently it did have an actual effect. And all they had to do was was kidnap and murder some people and mutilate their bodies. If you can imagine the CIA doing such a such a dastardly thing. Yeah. So the, so the version of the story I had heard was more that they were spreading the rumors that there were vamp- vampires around. I wasn't aware they were also going around. Oh well, we'll provide some additional evidence. I say, matey, come over here. Step, step, step. All right. Now drain that person's blood and leave them on the street. Because it's one thing. And I'm saying one thing as if as if there's a moral boundary that's been mm. broken here. It's one thing to kill your opponent. It's another thing to kill your opponent, drain them of their blood, and then leave their corpse behind. It's the mm. added thing of we'll also remove their blood before yes. we drop their body off. We'll on the just street. desecrate their corpse. Yeah, yeah. It it just it makes it slightly more evil than the previous plan. Mm. Mm. Yes. Okay, well, then the next story, we're now into the slightly sexy stories. So brace yourself. Make sure you are. I'll, I'll, I'll just fan myself slightly yes. in case I, yes. I get a, a take of the vapors. I, I take no responsibility for any inflamed ardor about your person. So, okay, we've had. What have we had? We've had weather control in Vietnam. We've had vampires in the Philippines. Now it's time for Sex Dolls in Moscow. I feel Sex Dolls in Moscow could have used more of a sort of an 80s synthwave theme. It does sound like a, a prog rock band. I mean, it's done that quite well for itself. From, from, from Full Moon Productions, one of the demonic toys or Puppet Master films, Sex Dolls in Moscow. It sounds Almost like one of certainly. the great films that Charles Band would have made. Mm, something like that. Probably, probably directed by Albert Pure. Probably, yeah, yeah, I can see it. I can see it in my head right now. Uh, speaking of movies, though, did you ever see Red Sparrow, the uh, Jennifer Lawrence one? No, no, I know of it, but no, I've, I've never seen Jennifer it. Lawrence? Is that what I'm thinking of? Yes. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a good film... Hard to recommend, though, because it's basically just an endless series of horrible, horrible things happening to Jennifer Lawrence as she gets sucked into working for the the Russian um, spy industry. But it's based on a book, and the book uh, is, was written by a CIA, a former CIA agent who had been in the CIA for decades. Uh, the thing about the book is apparently it's very authentic and very detailed in how it depicts spycraft as, it, as it's actually practiced. Um, and so how it's relevant to this story, you, you know how in a movie someone will show up to a meeting and say, don't worry, I made sure I wasn't followed, or, or like, um, I'm, I'm sorry I was late, I, had to sh- I was being tailed, I had to shake my tail. And then it's just a single line of dialogue. In the book, apparently it devotes multiple pages to explaining exactly how you go about making sure you're not followed or shaking someone if, if you are being followed, which apparently is a very laborious and time-consuming process of sort of checking and doubling back and and, and bluffing and, and counter-bluffing, and it gets very, very involved and repetitive. And in the late 1970s, the CIA just did not have time for that. Actually, it's not, it wasn't really laziness. It was apparently... The KGB was um, 
stepping up their their surveillance of people who they knew to be, you know, foreign agents working in Moscow. These these mysterious people who'd work in the US embassy, but just sort of pop out on on little errands all the time, doing who knows what. And so they were finding it increasingly difficult if they needed to go out and meet with a contact to actually do so without being followed or detected. And so one thing they came up with to 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 help them get away with this sort of thing was the jib, where jib stands for Jack in the Box. Another movie, you know, I'm pretty sure it's Men in Black 2, where Will Smith comes to his car and there's like an agent sitting in it and he opens the car and the agent gets sucked back into the steering wheel. Yeah, I'm fairly sure that is part two, yes. it's it's uh, Imagine that crossed with the automatic pilot from Airplane. Oh. So, 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 so the idea is, right, you, you're a CIA agent, you need to sneak off and have a, meet, have a meeting with one of your contacts without the KGB knowing. So what you do is you get in a car, the car's being driven by another agent, you start heading towards where you want to go, and obviously this KGB, I assume, would probably have cars stationed outside the US embassy ready to follow anyone who came out. So you'd be able to tell fairly quickly when you're being followed. You then create a little bit of distance between yourself and the car that's following you, turn a corner, and then immediately the agent who needs to get away jumps out of the car. The driver then activates the jib, which basically pops up an inflatable person in the in the passenger seat so that by the time the KGB car gets around the corner, it appears that there are still two people in the car. And the agent who's busy, who's dressed like an, an ordinary Muscovite is able to get off to their meeting while the driver just leads the KGB agents on a on a merry chase around the city before returning to the US embassy. This actually does sound it's a scene out of the naked gun films. You can just see well, Frank Drebin mm. diving out of the car and the inflatable Frank Drebin appearing in the driver's seat. Yeah, it was basically that. I mean, obviously it didn't, it only had to look realistic enough to f- to, to make it look, you know, like there was a human figure to somebody who's in another car some distance away from you. It didn't have to be hyper-realistic. But um, so, so, so that, that was the idea. Um, now we only know, we, we first heard about this technology in a, a book from 2008 called Spycraft, which was written by a fellow called Robert Wallace, who was former head of the CIA's Office of the Technical Service, and another CIA consultant called H. Keith Melton. Um, now, of course, I should point out this: this is the 70s, and well, actually more into the 80s. Back then, it was still uh, still a bit of the, the, the old-fashioned kind of cloak-and-dagger stuff. I mean, in the 80s, the most sophisticated surveillance is going to be, what, sort of grainy video security cameras or a dude with binoculars. It's not as sophisticated as things have got today. And so, you know, we're, wearing costumes and disguises, you know, the, the, the good old false moustache and a big hat sort of thing um, was still was still a thing in espionage. But when they wanted to solve this particular problem, they turned to Hollywood. Um, so they talked to a couple of a couple of Hollywood sort of costume. This, this isn't going to be the Brian Brown film FX now, is it? By any chance, but also Brian Dennehy. Not specifically, but I mean it's that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean the CIA did this film bad sequel. Never uh, have I seen the sequel. If I have, I don't remember it, which means it's not very good. Yeah, uh, that 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 first film. Is actually, it's kind of great. I mean, mm, yeah, Brian's no, a good film. Dennehy in his prime, Brian Brown 
the greatest Roman detective of, of all time. Marcus Didius Falcio, and I'm here to solve a crime in ancient Rome. Put some shrimps on the barbie, mate. And I think there's actually another movie connection here. Um, these these two guys who worked in Hollywood but occasionally contracted for the CIA on the side, uh, one of them was a man called Les Smith, who was some sort of a did sort of costumes and stuff, but he also uh, made illusions for stage magicians. What's the term? An engineer or something? But Jonathan Creek, basically, yeah, yeah. he was a bit, bit of a Jonathan Creek or a or a Christian Bale in dodgy prosthetics, spoiling the twins' plot twist in in in, in the Prestige. Did you get that? I remember when I watched The Prestige, the first time he's like Christian Bale, he's got this new engineer, and the first time you see the guy, it's like. That's Christian Bale in a fake nose and a mustache. So, right. so I I bought the illusion up until the twist went. Oh, that's ah, kind. You know, of- I, I took one look at the dude and thought, no. Anyway, so this is this is what we took. So, and, and I mean, you can as you can probably um, see from the description, it does share something with the concept of stage ma- uh, stage magic. You've got a you you are pulling that sort of a trick on people where there's. Um, how would, you, how would you describe it? There's a bit of sleight of hand going on, you know, a bit, bit, bit of misdirection. They think they're seeing one thing when they're actually seeing something else. So it definitely um, you can understand a uh, stage magician being involved. So the second guy involved was a man called John Chambers. Um, he was a makeup and prosthetics guy, and he was involved as a key player in, in what they called the Canadian caper, that thing where they smuggled hostages out of Iran by pretending to film a science fiction movie. Oh, the Ben Affleck film. Yeah, yeah, the Ben Affleck film Argo. So if you've seen the film Argo, John Goodman's character is this guy, John Chambers. Um, is, is, is played by Goodman in the, in the dramatization of that. But he wasn't just helping them uh, in that affair. He also proposed this idea of the jib. But um, while, while uh, Mr. What were their names? Smith and Chambers uh, came up with the idea, it was actually put into practice by a guy called Walter McIntosh. He was an actual CIA agent. Um, he was the, the head of the CIA disguise unit in the late 1970s. Apparently, according to the article I read, which was written in, I think, 2015, um, he moved to New Zealand and runs a bed and breakfast here, or at least did seven years ago. Breakfast feature a lot of inflatable sex dolls pretending to be Well, cousins. could be. I don't know. They didn't. They didn't give any more details than that, so I don't know where in New Zealand. But um, he. So he. He was the guy. He was. He. He had been given the idea, and it was up to him and presumably his team to actually make it work. So to make it work, they needed an inflation mechanism like the ones used to inflate, you know, emergency life rafts, something that can be inflated in a matter of seconds. Uh, and they needed an inflatable person. I was kind of imagining that as the driver, as the person jumps out the door, the driver is having to just hold onto the wheel, go, mm, just desperately, yeah. desperately pounding a foot pump. Yeah, uh, no, they had, so they had an inflation mechanism, and they needed inflatable people. And fortunately, in the late nineteen seventies, inflatable people were a thing. They're still a thing now. They still are. Yes. Um, Although, although I, I understand um, artificial sex partner technology has advanced a fair bit um, in the interim, but back then, um, Mr. McIntosh, having decided that um, it was a little too, uh, he, he, he couldn't bring himself to send his secretary out to go shopping for sex dolls, he thought um, he should take that responsibility on himself. So he, he basically says how he walked around the area 
found an adult bookstore and said, do you guys sell inflatable people? And they said, yes. And he said, I would like several, please. And apparently, obviously, the, the process of prototyping and getting it all working, they went through a fair few uh, sex dolls. And so he... Oh, I, I bet they went through a fair few sex dolls mm. perfecting the technology. Yeah, so and so he became. He said he said he thought he must have got something of a reputation because he was constantly going into these shops buying buying sex dolls in bulk. Uh, but it worked. Basically, they eventually got it going. They made, you know, got the 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 doll. They managed to attach, I assume, clothing and stuff to it to make make it look more like the silhouette of an actual person. I don't know that they didn't go into much detail, because I assume that you know it would only need to be a person from the waist up. Um, to fit in a chair, so they, they 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 had it small enough that it could sit in a little box and that sort of thing. Um, they had a bit of trouble with the inflation mechanism, apparently, because obviously you want it to go as fast as possible, but too much pressure and it will burst, and not enough pressure, and and the thing will will, will sag and flop around and look silly. So, but I reckon that they they got it working, and uh, in 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 the lab, and apparently it worked just fine in real life. Uh, so. The article I read said the first time the jib was used was in 1982. So they came up with the idea in the late 70s, but it was 82 before they actually had a proper working prototype that they could use in the field. So at this time, they needed to meet a guy called Adolf Tolkachev. He was a Soviet engineer who had been stealing technical information and passing it on to the CIA. Um, and they'd, he'd, he'd been sort of secretly, they'd been meeting with him to receive the stolen information for a while. But KGB surveillance was particularly high at the time. Uh, they, they made it sound like it wasn't specifically because of that, just the CIA occasionally would ramp up their surveillance just to keep people on their toes, or I don't know. So they really needed to meet with this guy. They were, you know, a little bit worried that something might have happened to him. And in case something would might happen to him, they wanted to make sure they got the information off him as quickly as they could. So they needed to make a meeting, but they needed to avoid KGB surveillance to achieve that. So this looked like a job for the jib, a jib job, if you will. Hold on. Say, say that pun again. I said it looked like a job for the jib, a jib job, if you will. Thank you. Uh, and apparently it worked. Apparently it, it worked just fine. Uh, the agent was able to, to um, avoid, was able to jump out of the car and avoid detection. The KGB followed his driver back to the US embassy and the, the meeting went off with a, uh, without a hitch. Uh, unfortunately, Mr. Tolkachev's story does not have a happy ending. Um, in 1985, he was ended up being betrayed by a couple of CIA double agents working for the KGB and was was arrested and executed, which uh, is is unfortunate. But um, no no statement against the effectiveness of the jib. Uh, and so because it worked that time, they used it a bunch more following that, apparently. Um, to, it became known enough that Edward Lee Howard, who was one of the CIA turncoats who had betrayed Adolf Tolkachev, ended up rigging up his own version of a jib and using it himself to elude the FBI when he was when he defected to Russia. Mm, sounds like he was jibbed on his own petard. Or the he, CIA was jibbed on their petard. Or ho- Whatever they hoisting their own jib. And jibbing 
and they hoisted and they jibbed and they jabbed. Yep, and it all worked. Um, and yeah, that's that's basically the story of the jib. Obviously, these days the advances in sort of surveillance and tracking technology has reached the point where this sort of cloak and dagger stuff is just obsolete. There's there's no, um, you know, it, it would never work today because it's so easy to track and trace and plant bugs and listen in and surveil and what have you. So the article I read didn't ex- say exactly when the jib was retired, just that it's not really used anymore. Presumably it wasn't being used in 2008, for instance, when it was included in the book. Oh, this could be an elaborate double bluff by telling people well, oh, we, don't, be, we, yes. we don't use these jibs anymore you don't need to worry about those strange looking people in company cars we're definitely not using inflatable sex dolls to hide mm. who we're meeting with these days no siree that doesn't happen anymore i just told you we're not doing it well, I mean, like I say, uh, artificial sex partner technology has improved in leaps and bounds since the 80s. So maybe they're using, maybe they, they, they have some complicated scheme involving real dolls to uh, throw KGB agents off the scent now. I don't know. Could be anything. Could be, could be animatronics. Could be robotic sex dolls roaming the streets of Moscow right now. Well, many, many people do think the CIA is just made up of robotic sex dolls anyway, mm. so... Frankly. So that's the story of sex dolls in Moscow. I have one more story for you, another one in the, uh, of a slightly a slightly bawdier nature. So to recap, we've had weather control in Vietnam, we've had vampires in the Philippines, we've had sex dolls in Moscow. Our last story is sex tapes in Indonesia. Which sounds like it actually should be an 80s album. Oh, yes, and coming up from Crowded House, it's their new album, Six tapes in Indonesia with their first their first song Manila Folder. Well, sh- surely six surely six tapes in Indonesia would be the first release by Sex Dolls in Moscow, or maybe those sort of sister bands who would collaborate on different projects. I don't know. Uh, so anyway, we're we're talking about a plot to get rid of the president of Indonesia with a sex tape. So in 1945, following the war, a man by a man who went by Sukarno, which was not his birth name, but that's sort of the name, just, just Sukarno is one word, was the name that um, everybody knew him by. He became the first president of Indonesia after it won independence from the Dutch. Now, Sukarno wasn't a communist himself, but the communist party what was an ally of his, and he did definitely have sort of leftward, sort of socialistic leanings, uh, which meant that the US and the UK weren't entirely happy with him being in charge of the world's most populous Muslim nation. So they both countries decided they would rather get rid of this fellow. So yeah, the CIA seemed to be kind of in two minds about how they wanted to deal with Sukarno. There were there was talk of a of, of a paramilitary uh, sort of solution, you know, the, the, the old the old fermenting a coup, back, back, backing a revolution or a coup against him. Uh, but then other people thought that well, maybe that they might be a bit risky. You never quite know exactly which way a revolt's going to go. It could make matters worse. So other people, so it, it seemed like both things were kind of being planned at the same time. But other people were pursuing the idea of can we just blackmail him? Can we can we blackmail him out of office? Now, Sukarno was was known known to be a ladies' man. He he loved the ladies, 
and um, there there were even rumours that it had some somewhat of a dalliance with an air hostess who turned out to actually be a Russian agent. Uh, there was a minor revolt in sort of 1956 to 1957, which was put down by his government. It was unsuccessful. But apparently these rumours that he had been possibly compromised by the Russians did, did feed into that revolt in, in some, some manner. And so the CIA decided, apparently, that if, if, a, if a bit of a sex scandal almost got rid of him, well, if we can make an even bigger sex scandal... That, that that might that might just do the job. And so their idea was, well, if, if rumors didn't do it, what if we actually release a sex tape of the guy, or at least release what we claim is a sex tape of the guy? And so they decided they would would fake a sex tape of of Sukano, basically. Um, so apparently they, they sort of Somebody had the job of surveying the um, the output of the local porn industry. I don't know if this was often was it San Fernando? Is it still San Fernando Valley where all the porn comes from? I don't know. It used to be. Presumably don't, was. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think given the rise of internet porn, mm. you can just you can make porn anywhere. We could be making yeah. porn right now, Josh. As far as you know, we are. So, but but at any rate, they looked around and were hoping that if you know if they'd looked through a bunch of porn films, they might find a guy who looked a bit like Sukarno, and then be able to use him. But they they were unable to find anybody who looked like a bald Indonesian president, and so they decided, okay, Plan B, we will make a mask. They'll make a latex face mask that looks like Sukarno. We'll put it on a guy. We'll film it in, you know, this, this is this is late 50s, early 60s, so film technology would be grainy enough that you could possibly get away with, you know, someone who just looked looked enough like the guy that we could say, this is this is actually him. Um, make this make the sex tape, release it, destroy the guy's reputation, or or, or at least threaten to leak it and and blackmail him out of office under the threat of his reputation being destroyed. Now, apparently, depending on who you talk to, apparently they did actually make this film. They made they made the CIA commissioned a porn film with a guy wearing a Sukarno mask, uh, but it was never released. I'd sort of read a couple of different accounts. No, nobody can quite agree on the details of exactly what the film was called or exactly what happened in it. So maybe, maybe it's not actually true that they made it. But most people, most people seem to say yes, the film was made, but then couldn't actually agree on on the details of it. All we know is that Sukarno was not blackmailed out of office, having been threatened with the release of a sex tape, and there's possibly a good reason for that. Because while the CIA was faking a sex tape of Sukarno, apparently the KGB had a real one. Oh, uh, I talked about the idea that he had been um, the, 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 so these rumors about 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 um, him his his rendezvous with an air hostess who might have been a Russian agent seemed to have something to them. Apparently, they, the KGB did did the same thing that they've been doing ever since, the same thing that they allegedly did to Donald Trump. He went on, uh, Sukarno went to, to Russia on, you know, as, as, as a head of state might do, and they put him up in a hotel room, which, in, which turned out to have hidden cameras around, uh, saw to it that a, a bunch of attractive, quote-unquote, ear hostesses were sent up to his hotel room and filmed the proceedings. But that sex tape was also never used to blackmail him out of office. And there's probably a good reason for that, because if you'll recall, 
I said at the beginning, he was known to be a ladies' man. And moreover than that, he was a ladies' man who was a big believer in polygamy. The man had four official wives and a fifth de facto one. So a sex tape of this guy probably wasn't going to have the impact they wanted it to. Just, oh, no, you're going to provide proof that I had wild sex with a group of beautiful women in a hotel room. Oh, no, don't do that. Not the briar patch, Briar Rabbit. Uh, So the story goes that apparently when the KGB said, hey, we have the sex tape of you and a bunch of beautiful women, his only response was to ask for a copy of it. So if 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 we um, which which you know that that that's the rumor, but um, it's certainly you know the, the fact that he was Indonesia's greatest sex machine uh, was part of his you know part of his appeal. I think he had the sort of machismo thing going for him. So possibly this whole blackmail him out with the sex tape thing was doomed to failure from the start. Uh, he was eventually ousted. They eventually got rid of him the old-fashioned way. In 1967, there was a coup, which was backed by the CIA and MI6, and he was um, he was booted out after that. But no sex tapes were involved in his downfall, as far as I know. And that brings me to the end of my story of, of CIA shenanigans. So what was I? Three out of four? Or had you heard heard some of these sex tapey rumours as well. I suspect I may have heard about sex tapes and the CIA in some degree, but I don't think I knew about this particular one, especially the twists in the tale of, so we made a fake sex tape, and then we didn't use it, because it turned out there was a real sex tape, which we also couldn't use because it turned out that actually a sex tape against this particular president isn't going to work anyway. Mm. He's kind of known for doing this stuff. It wouldn't be surprising. I mean, what would probably be more surprising would be there is no sex tape of your president. He claims to be a bit of a swinger, and yet we can find no evidence. Makes you think, vote for the other guy in this coming election. Yes, yeah, they probably would have been more successful with the sex tape of him trying to satisfy a woman but failing to rise to the occasion or something. Now, I, I don't know... The article that I read, I'm not sure if the CIA knew about the KGB one at the time, it's it's just sort of something that we found out about afterwards, but it shows that you know if if, if a real one didn't do the job, then a fake one almost certainly yeah. wasn't going to. Yeah. Uh, and so that is all I have to tell you about dodgy, occasionally humorous, largely depressing when you get down to it, things that the CIA got up to in the second half of the 20th century. I came into this segment with the highest of esteem for the CIA, and I feel that mm. you. You've lowered them in my estimation. Yeah, I, I, I apologise for sullying the reputation of the CIA and the things they get up to in foreign countries, but I can only I can only tell you what I've learned. Don't shoot the messenger. L- literally, CIA, if you're listening in on us, please don't shoot the messenger. And I think that is all I have to say. Indeed. Which means that uh, there's nothing for us to do but um, finish up this episode and uh, maybe go record a bonus one if we're able to. I, I'm assuming I've been able to cleverly edit around it, but we've we've hit a couple of technical snags while recording this one, which um, resulted in, in no amount of dead air. But I think we think we've got that sorted, and with any luck, our our, our luck will hold. I mean, maybe what we should do now is we should record a few, a few instances of me going, oh. That is interesting, Joshua. Please do go on and tell me more about insert topic here. And mm. ah, that is very interesting, Josh. Please insert topic here. Could you tell me more about the way in which the CIA created robot dogs and then continue on with 
insert topic here. You know, just add in a few things to really make the those those transitions seem really elegant. Yeah, maybe we can work on that. Maybe we can include it as bonus content. Although we do actually have things to talk about in the, the bonus episode this week. What are we going to talk about? Something crashed into the moon and no one's willing to own up to who put it there. And I guess we've got to talk both about the Jan 6 stuff, which people are saying is the smoking gun you need to show that Trump really was involved in an insurrectionist coup. And I guess we should probably also touch upon the fact that it seems that some Supreme Court appointees lied about their intentions about what they would do when they got on the Supreme Court. And then when they got on the Supreme Court, they did what everyone thought they were going to do in the first place. So unfortunately, we've got a fun story and then two increasingly depressing stories. So if you if you want to hear stories about people shooting the moon and then also a bit of talk about the, all, all the business going on in the States and you're a patron, well, you're in luck because you're, you, you're going to get that whether you want it or not. Um, if you'd really like that and you're not currently a patron, then just go to patreon.com and search for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy and become one. And then you'll get this this bonus episode plus what are we up to in bonus episodes now? A hundred and something. A whole lot of other ones anyway. We are getting awfully close to the two hundredth bonus. Oh goodness. And I feel we probably need to do something for that. Mm, mm, must do. Uh and if you're not interested in being a patron, well that's just fine because you're you're an audience, you're you're part of your you're a loyal, I assume, listener. Maybe you're a first time listener and and you're expecting to every episode to be full of rousing tales of CIA hijinks. I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed. Or you're a first-time listener who's going, oh, I, I can't wait to find out about the, what do all this talk about sex dolls? Why is there so much talk about sex dolls? Uh, but whoever you are and wherever you are, thank you for listening to the end of this. And uh, I really don't have anything to say apart from goodbye. Murder, she wrote. You've been listening to Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, hosted by Josh Addison and M. Dentif. If you'd like to help support us, please find details of our pledge drive at either Patreon or Podbean. If you'd like to get in contact with us, email us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com.